and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we have a podcast version of John Drummond interview Fraser McAllister, who is the father of Jane McAllister, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago about the film that she was trying to have released, which features her father and his efforts in the 2014 campaign. Now, the great news is the Kickstarter has been successful, so that film will now steam ahead into production. Hopefully we can all see it in due course. For now, this is John having a chat to Fraser, the star of Jane's film. Hello, and welcome to the TNT show. I'm John Drummond. Tonight, we are again talking about movie making. So many of you uh, greatly enjoyed Jane McAllister talking about the new movie, To See Ourselves. And you may remember she talked about the financing of it and how important it was. But she also talked of one of the principal movers in the whole process. And he was just doing an outstanding job. So we thought we could ask Jane's father, Fraser McAllister, to come and join us tonight. Hi, Fraser. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Well, John, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. And where are you joining us from tonight? Musselburgh. It's just uh, where I live, still. <laughs> and how is Musselburgh this evening? It's grand. There's not a cloud in the sky. I look out to trees. I'm looking away, and uh, it's balmy. Yeah. I've never heard Musselburgh described as balmy before. Oh, that's great. Now, Jane's excellent, excellent movie. You played a principal role. Tell us a little bit how you got from Springburn to playing a role in a a, a movie. How did that happen? Well, I I was a librarian and um, started off life in Springburn. And two of the kids, including Jane, was born in Springburn when we went back. So there was a marriage and the job was librarianship. I was in the library at the time, local one, and a girl said, would you like to work here? And I said, well, that'd be lovely. Uh, get my dad off my back because I'd left school. And I didn't really have to do any more. I'd say, get out the hippie gear and come back and see Mr. Fergus. And that was that. In, in those days, you could get a job very easily. And so you didn't need to feel grateful. But it was, it was a great occupation. And I... I was running a teenage library in Yorkshire when an offer came, or well, an interview and then an offer of a job in Edinburgh, and that's why I came through to the East. I've been, we've been here about 30 years now, and I, I love the fact that it doesn't rain every day. That was the first story. <laughs> many, many more. And so, I understand that I've always been a wee bit of a troublemaker, um, and uh, I formed Yes Musselburgh through the SNP um, in 2013. And um, I'm now the convener of the, the, the Mark II version that formed in 2017. And uh, the wonderful lady that started that, Kathleen McDonald, uh, and uh, she continues to be an inspiration, although she passed away a year and a half ago. with a memorial, memorial lecture for her. And we started that in March. And uh, the promise is to our family that we'll just keep going until we get independence. Then we'll stop it. Yeah. And you you were a councillor for a time, is that right? I was. Um, again, it's like, you know, somebody asked me, do you like to work in the library? You know, uh, 
I wasn't at the meeting. I took a phone call from Willie Renton. I would like you to be a, a, a possible counsellor. I said, that's fine, Willie. I'll have to ask my, my wife and family. I'll call you back in a week. So I called them back in a few days. At the end of that week, he phoned and said, I'm really sorry, we don't want you to stand. I said, that's fine. Because I wasn't bothered in the least. And then about two weeks after that, he phoned back and said, we do want you to stand. So that's fine. We're going to have to ask everybody again. But I really, I knew I was only doing it once, you know, five years, but what a wonderful privilege. And I, I did my best, but looking back, I could have done so much better. And it just, you know, you're limited by your own capabilities and, and it, it, there's no connection with the amount of work you put in to the result that you get. The, the, the work that I put in, in for one issue, it was tremendous. Even if I say so myself, but it, it didn't bring, to my mind, it didn't bring the result, but some result, but not the result that I wanted. And then times in the street, people say, thanks for doing that. And you hadn't, I hadn't actually got around to doing it, you know. <laughs> So it was a great experience, and, and also it, it coincided with um, 2014. So that that was an even greater opportunity. I was made the ordinary province of Musselburgh, and I was able to go down to uh, the borders representing the town, but also trying to put in for the uh, Scottish independence, and that was fascinating. The borders are very different from the rest of Scotland. Um, good people, but very, very traditional, you know. Um, traditional in the sense of being wedded to the past, perhaps? Or? A great respect for the past. Oh, I mean, you, you go to the ridings at Hoyt, at Borders, near to Freeway, Langham, stepping into history. Yeah. And they really do uh, have great respect, but sometimes I think it's it's a bad thing, you know, for for not to accept change and want change and, and actually control change. Unless unless what you've got is perfect, but it's not. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people's attitude to change is determined by the fact that they may be frightened of change. And yes. sometimes there are very good reasons to be frightened of change. Other people don't want to change because they can't see any possibility of an improvement. And you better stick with the devil you know. Which of those do you think, of those two views, might have characterised the borders for you? I think there's a there's a love for there's such a love for the place and the respect for the way things have always been, and the writings are, are, are just the, the the epitome of that. But I think that what the borders did they shared it with a lot of people who were frightened of change. The older you get, the less you want it. And a case in point, we yes, Musselburgh had um, a shop in Musselburgh, and we had it for six months or more. And I remember going to the bin, and I didn't know which bin was ours. It was a tenement. And this woman came out, and she started, are you part of this, this shop? Are you part of this independence? I said, yes, I'm just looking for the bin. Well, she went for me. Now, she was a lady, I would say, in her 50s, maybe. Um, she was on her own. She was on benefit. And she was terrified of life in the future, but she was more terrified of the certainty that it was going to get worse than, than the possibility that yeah. the change that we were going to bring about might make it better. Yeah. Isn't that weird? 
it's, it's, not, it's not weird if you study American politics. In American politics, the issues tend to be focused around what the pollsters suggest people might respond well to. So, for example, American politicians will say such and such is polling well. They don't mean a party. They mean a theme or a subject mm. or an idea is polling well. And then what the candidates do, because you very often can't get a cigarette paper between the yeah. Democrats and Republicans, yeah. is to say, I believe in this thing more than he stroke she does. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of that goes on. And I suspect, looking back at 2014, I suspect the, the no side was far better at identifying issues where people were uncertain and exploiting them. Yeah. I mean, I, I had conversations with the people running yes. And I said, I asked them the question, and that's a question I put to Jane last week, was you, you seem to be playing golf with one club, which is positive. So they had this one club, and it was always positive. Whatever they did, it was always positive. I said, the other side are going to go negative. And it seems to me you should have at least one other club in your, in your back other than just one. And they said, yes, we do. But I never saw any evidence of it. I never saw any negative campaigning by the yes side in 2014. Did you see any? No. The, the nearest that we got to it was in the very last weeks. And I didn't think it was controversial. I know that people in the SNP branch did, and they wouldn't display the posters. One of the memorable moments was when Jim Murphy came to town, and my pal Willie Renton said, there's an enormous crowd uh, just at the crossing. So I said, right, that'll be Jim Murphy. And sure enough, when the TV cameras were there, masses of people, as many Tories and and uh, Labour people uh, together. So... Um, I get interviewed, and if I remember then saying to Murphy, um, when Thatcher left office, she said that her greatest achievement was new labour. Yes. What did she mean by that? And are you still in new labour? Obviously, a lot of dissembling after that. But so I started heckling them as other people. When cars were stopping, we were screeching to a halt, halt coming out like this. And what is this? And then so that's a lot of the toys. He's a councillor. We'll, we'll report him. There was a guy in front of me who'd never been at a protest in his life, you know, toffee balls. And, uh, oh, be, be quiet. And I, and I would say to him, I'm very sorry, sir, I lost it there. And then as soon as he turned his back, I would go for him again, you know. I told you to be quiet. <laughs> this is a pavement. <laughs> so, with the, and now that characterised the whole, well, my, my experience of, uh, of running the campaign was the fun, the entertainment. But the thing, I ha I got an interview from Laura Kunzberg, and it was on BBC Two, and I said that we're here because we want the government, we always want the government that we choose. If we get Scottish independence, we will never, ever have a Tory government. And do you know what she said to that? I'd never thought of that. That's what Laura, Laura Kunzberg said. Yeah. We had, we had bigger, I mean, huge things, but yeah. this was the whole point of it. We were going to Labour say, but we'll, we'll, we'll um, run things. Well, what, for five years, 10 years? Yeah. The Scottish people wrote a two million petition, a covenant to Attlee, 
uh, saying we want independence. This was just after the war. And Attlee said, you don't need it now, you've got me. But we had only Attlee, although he was brilliant. We only had five years. I mean, like everything else in life, you can see the right side of that and the accuracy of it. But you can also see that it was it was it was crazy and nonsensical because if you take your reply to Kunzberg, it's very enlightening to know that she hadn't considered that. No, and that's not, in my humble opinion, unusual. I mean, for example, the BBC has set up a verification team. They've acquired a room in London in which their output will be examined for its factual accuracy. And two thoughts immediately came to mind. One was, what was their record in factual accuracy? Uh, From this particular group, we know how little factual accuracy there is in BBC Scotland News, but this was a group specifically set up to check the facts. Apparently, one of its first statements was completely wrong because they'd taken a press release from the Tories, I think, and just run it, which is something we're well accustomed to in Scotland. Uh, It turned out to be inaccurate, but they hadn't checked it. And the second thought that came to mind was, isn't that what we paid journalists for anyway, to check the facts? Why do you need a separate department to check the facts? I think I was a journalist and, and, and the BBC, I'd be saying, what a damn cheek that, that you're impugning my personal integrity when you set up a department like that. That's what I would have thought. You know, that was uh, the thing that, that we found very useful. Professor John Robertson, talking up Scotland, tracks yeah. it every day. I had an experience two weeks ago at uh, Haddington in, in um, St. Margaret's Church. So here, Stammer was going to be the speaker at the... Uh, in the um, John P. McIntosh lecture, memorial lecture. Yeah. And he pulled out. And so they got a stand in um, Gavin Esler. And uh, I, I was at the front. I, I wanted this opportunity, I'd hoped for it for a while. And uh, when I came, hand up, and uh, I said to him, uh, Mr. Esler, and if I, I, I approached myself now because it was a brilliant speech and I could have been more gracious, but I just went in straight in. I said, uh, Mr. Esler, you you presented in 2014 um, at peak time on BBC uh, a report, a documentary on a new group called No Borders. I don't know if you remember. And um, this was to have no politicians, no celebrities. It was just going to be local people living at the borders who wanted the, the country to stay the same. I said it very quickly transpired that um, the person behind it was living in London, that he was a hedge fund financier who was a big donor to the Conservative Party and his partner was a, ran a PR company. I said no borders had, had no members. It was a, a total hocus-pocus, astroturf fake. And the person behind it, John uh, Malcolm, offered it was a con man. He's now in the House of Lords. Ah, he's, he's an under-parliamentary. He didn't get elected, but, you know, well, it's not. Like, it's not. He's now an under-parliamentary yeah. secretary uh, against Scotland. So I said to him, uh, when did you find this out? 
because I said to him, you should have found out in five minutes. Well, he went apeshit. And I was hand-biting him back in the mic. I held on to it. And so we had a stand-up argument. And it's all Labour people behind. So Macintosh was a Labour man. First guy, first Labour guy to advocate devolution or one of them. So they started booing. <laughs> I just said, you, you could have found this out in five minutes. You used your authority and celebrity to, to give this authority. First of all, he denied it. It was just internet conspiracy. And then I'm basically mad. I'm thinking, I saw you. You were standing alone. You were in the open air. And I think it was dark. And then he remembered. So, oh, yeah, that was at the Pentland Hills. Yeah. So these, these as Frankie Boyle says, they're not journalists. They're courtiers. Oh, God, don't get me started. But whenever you have a, an arrangement whereby journalists can be rewarded by the state in the form of knighthoods or honours, then you've got you have a corrupt system. Yes. In most countries, if you were seen to be state sponsored, either before or after your career, it, it would it would be the kiss of death. It really would, because people would say, "Well, you know, I thought this guy had some credibility. He's now accepted this honour. That tells me everything I need to know." Because these things are not done overnight. The public view is is quid pro quo. In other words, you got the honour because of something you did or didn't do in most cases. Either way, you shouldn't be any part of it. You, you shouldn't have accepted the honour. You didn't have to. And the fact that you did tells me everything about your integrity. And, and most journalists would, would seek to protect their integrity because at the end of the day, that's all you've got is your integrity, your personal integrity. Uh, and to give it away so lightly strikes me as bizarre. I mean, I'll give you an example. For my sins, I, I business ethics consultancy. I, I would interview business people who had just retired. And the question that always got the most regret, regretful answer was this one. Do you ever regret not behaving ethically when you could? And almost to a man, because they were mostly men at that time, they said, yeah, deeply. There were many occasions where I could have behaved well uh -huh. and I chose to behave badly. And now that my career is over, all I can think about is how much I regret the fact that I had, I had integrity, but I gave it away so cheaply. And there was ways I've, I could have avoided doing that. It was very sad. These people were reduced to a, a sort of a husk, really. You know, And that's, you know, you think to yourself, well, that's so, so sad. You spent all these hours to amass all this money and it's no blank good to you <laughs> mm -hmm. because you don't feel good in yourself. And that, I thought that was a very sad indictment. It seems to me that some journalists must, must inevitably feel the same way. I think in general, at the end of your life, you, you get a different perspective. And the joke about uh, the guy in his deathbed thinking if only I'd spent more hours at the office is... is <laughs> <laughs> That's true. When you look back on the 2014 referendum, Fraser, what is your, your lasting thought? Because you must have gone through a period when the result was announced where you were absolutely crushed. Everybody that worked for it felt that way. It was like a bereavement. Um, I think because towards the end we were so op optimistic. There were yes posters everywhere, even in um, the People's Socialist Republic of Morningside, 
you didn't see better to it was just yes, 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 yes. Because nobody was counting the windows that didn't have anything. And um, we hadn't seen any real um, campaigning on the street, or very little. So I think it was that almost euphoric mood towards the end. We had it. And it was just devastating. It really was. I think it, it was like an old-fashioned Scottish Sabbath, the Friday. Yeah. People were exhausted. We were deeply depressed and would be for months. But the people who had won weren't behaving like winners. I don't think there were any parties, maybe in the mansions. But there wasn't a, a, a great sense of achievement. I think people saw themselves in the mirror and they didn't like what they saw. Yeah. David Cameron didn't help with whipping off the mast. Will of uh, English uh, boats for English laws, you know, what happened to the, the happy, you know, big family and whatnot. So, yeah, it was just regret. But after a while, there was a realisation that because of Alex Salmon's audacity, he'd taken a, 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 an idea that was in the sort of mid to high 20s and got to nearly 50%. And it made a, a marginal idea mainstream. Independence was now normal, and it stayed that way. Well, today, um, there's a poll... 53%. 53%, yeah, 53%, yes. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was hard. It really was hard, and I think people wanted change uh, because through change you, get, you, you you can get hope for a better future you know and it was hope over fear fear is all that they had the ironic thing here is that I mean I think there was a terrible naivety about the yes campaign because it seems to me you, you have to deal with people on both sides of that equation you have to deal with people who are desirous of hope but you also have to deal with fear I mean I found that I was going around the doors I was talking to nice little old ladies who said, oh, I believe in Scottish independence in my heart. But my MP phoned me last night and said that my deceased husband's pension would cease if there was independence. They see, that's just fear. Uh, and the fact that MPs got themselves involved in this loathsome approach is disgraceful. But they did it because they're good soldiers. The guy at the top, the general, says, make people fearful, and they say, yeah, how fearful, how how, how high do you want me to jump? And yeah. the, the S campaign had nothing like that, and nothing that actually said to people, if you say no, this is what's going to happen to you. There was none of that. And I feel that because it was one-dimensional on the yes side, it allowed the opposition free reign on the fear side. Yeah, but remember, the biggest proportion of people still against independence are pensioners. Here's, a, here's an interesting story. We had a stall at Preston Pans, and opposite us at the bank, it's no longer a bank, was a, a Labour Party stall. And the leader of the Labour Party, Willie Innes, saw this old woman coming, or pension woman coming towards him, and engaged her in conversation. He didn't know that she was on her way to our stall because she was somebody's mum. So we were all desperate to know, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? He said, I'm not getting a pension. If I vote yes, I'm not getting a pension. Now, if 
you your own income is a pen, state pension. I mean, it's the worst pension in the OECD. You're finished. Yes, of course you are. But then again, you see, somebody should have said, with respect, somebody on the yes side, A should have anticipated that because it wasn't rocket science. S simple polling could have told them that. And, and secondly, having established that it would be an attack line, to have developed a different attack line based on a greater fear, i.e. rather than just say, for example, Brexit might happen or that Boris Johnson might happen, is, is to come out with some radical statements, like the poster that you showed us, that said, do you want Boris Johnson as your next MP? Yeah. Do you want to leave Europe? This is what's going to happen if you vote no. It's the end of that. The whole field was left to the no campaign. Right. We'd run exactly these things. We did it, John, but here's one here I'm going to show you. Oh, no, and you might remember this one. Oh, no, the oil's only worth $1.5 trillion. And it's going to run out in 50 years. Yeah. Just as well, what's it? Whiskey, renewables, tourism. Yeah. Um, you know, that one. And that, we, we just took it as a joke, but it wasn't yeah. a joke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if there was ever a rerun, and I suspect there will never be a rerun because I can't see uh, London in its present form, i.e. thinking about Starmer and, uh, and Sunak ever agreeing to a referendum. There's nothing in it for them. I mean, it's not as if the SNP is going to take over because the SNP's already taken over. So that, what have they got to lose? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, can I ask you how you feel now after the passage of these years and now we're sitting where we are in 2023? How do you feel now about the prospects for independence? I think the future is what you make it. And um, if people want it enough, it will happen. But people will have to um, find the determination and the courage and the ingenuity that was found during 2014. We were, remember at the start, John, we were told nobody wants this referendum, nobody wants it. And then 96% of the adult population registered to vote. That's never happened anywhere in the world. Yeah. So it happened because there was so much excitement, but also because there was a a conflict, a binary conflict, people couldn't just sit in the fence anymore. That's how you increase something by making, you know, by polarizing opinion. If you want to increase your mem trade union membership, the best way is to have a strike. Yeah. So you need to have a democratic event, such as a referendum. Now, Strathclyde did a referendum on the water in, well, it'd be the 90s, 92 maybe. Or maybe it's, I'm thinking I'm getting confused with how many didn't want a change. That was one of the reasons that the Tories changed the uh, local government and half the, the number of um, units. But it is up to us to say we want this badly enough. And I think the future is, is grim under Brexit. I mean, even when Farage says it doesn't work, apparently, someday, I don't think it was a joke, somebody was saying there's more folk believe and that the world is flat than the world of Brexit. It's going to work. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to get worse. And yeah. the other thing that's going to get worse is their attempted destruction, not just of the SNP, not just the devolution, but the Scottish Parliament, I believe. We've seen that already. 
Now, there has to be a resistance to that. So you say there ought to be resistance. Obviously, it's easier if that resistance is united. So what's your take on Alaba? I've mentioned this man twice already. I've going to mention him a third time, Willie Renton. He's an SNP organiser. Nobody in Scotland organised like him. Unbelievable. He joined Alba. A friend that I was with last week, no, this week, Ian Allen, was an SNP member for 47 years. These people did not find it easy to, to leave the SNP, but a great many good people have. And I think if we have to stand a chance, we need to do something like Canyon, Kenyon Wright did and yeah. form a cross-party churches, trade unions, civic groups body um, and not just to be a talking shop but to actually produce a draft a draft constitution bring everybody together and then when it comes to um, the general election I think there has to be maybe one ticket because one of the things we were, we're sick and tired of hearing is this women's obsession with independence you know now it'll be Hamza's uh, obsession with uh, independence. See when a whole country or half a country rather shares that obsession, it's not an obsession. So we need to get away from identifying what and it is, I mean the polls are showing SNP down, independence up. We need to get away from party politics and personalities and even policies. Say this is a principle, this is a principle of self determination. That was our banner when I was on the vigil the Scottish Parliament. Self-determination, that was our future. So let me extend this discussion a little bit further. Do you think that the First Minister should sit down with Alex Salmon and chart the way forward? If we're serious about this, I think it has to be. I mean, you think about after a war where sworn enemies have, 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 have um, shed blood sit together. I mean, it's... We don't, we don't live that way, fortunately. Um, in fact, do you remember all the churches wouldn't get involved last time, um, but they said there would be services of reconciliation all over the country. Well, there wasn't, because there wasn't any need. There's think there was someone in jails. But we're a very civilised people. Yeah. And um, I think if, I'm saying if the country wants independence enough, it'll get it. But if the SNP genuinely want it, and it's not wished for India or wished for paychecks. If they genuinely want it, they have to come together with every party and non-party supporter. Yeah. And, and by the way, if the Labour Party, then Labour will pick up some seats, but if they think they've got any future without acknowledging Scotland's right to self-determination, they're kidding themselves on. And they just no, need to think, think about the two banders and one, one MP at the moment. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, not because I have any personal belief for any particular uh, individual, but I, I was the first chair of the Independence Convention, and, and that was put together with Kenyon Wright, and I found it challenging because the, the steering committee consisted of Greens and the SSP, Tommy Sheridan, uh, the SNP, Bruce, uh, I've forgotten Bruce's second name, but anyway, um, and they all represented the parties, but I, I never got the feeling that the parties were fully committed to the process. The individuals were. The individual members were terribly enthusiastic. And and 
you know, I, I, I regretted it when I when I stepped down because I just felt that we had reached a position where we were going through the motions. So it seems to me that you're right. I think there has to be one specific aim. If there's going to be a constitutional convention, it ought to have one aim, and that's to produce a draft constitution. Yeah. That's it. Because if you go any further than that, you end up sort of getting involved in major policy decisions. And that's hard for the government party to do. But it's easy for the government party, it seems to me, to say, right, we will engage in a convention and no holds barred. We, we won't exclude anyone. It, you know, we won't even chair it. We'll have an independent chair. That's why Canon Kenya Wright was such a powerful figure when it came to devolution. Because even though people weren't entirely happy, he, he was able to bring them together because they saw him as non-partisan. Yeah. And they saw him as not having any axe to grind and not looking for any particular result. So yeah. I think that was very powerful. And if we could replicate that, I think that would take enormous strides. Because then you don't have to worry about a referendum necessarily. Because what you can do is you can say, we want to put a constitution to the Scottish people. Yeah. That is almost exactly the route that most uh, independence movements traveled yeah. in the past. The SNP is almost unique. In fact, it is unique in the sense that it, it has never tabled a constitution as the primary part of its objective. Mm -hmm. Never done it. Uh, and not for the want of asking, by the way, not least of all from me. You know many countries in the world, there's 200 countries, don't have a written constitution. When you tell people this, they're astonished. There's three. Yeah, well, one of the difficulties, and we discovered this when we did a poll, is that most people in England and Scotland don't know what a constitution is because they've grown up in a system where everything is done on the hoof. Uh, things just happen through a process. Who knows how it happens? And also where the government of the day, effectively, is is completely sovereign. That, that's where sovereignty lies in the, in the UK. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a crazy situation. The, the very fact of saying to the whole world, here is a statement of our principles and our intent, which has been endorsed by the Scottish Parliament and by the people, uh, then you're away. You, you, then the, the opposition have to say, we don't believe in written constitutions and we don't believe it. Th these are hugely undemocratic positions to adopt. As they're not sustainable, I would I would have thought. Yeah, popular things like getting back into the EU or some forum, they're not popular enough, you know. Yeah. And we, we shouldn't muddy the waters. To keep it very simple, it's democracy, freedom if you like. But um, uh, the the constitution, as con good constitutions do, as you say, they set out your values, but they give you your set out your rights and your duties. And for minorities, big minorities, it assures them that they're protected, they're safe. Exactly. And that's that's so important. And I was amazed. I mean, at the 11th hour, I think we were able to persuade Alex Salmon to include a draft interim constitution in the, the, the booklet that went to everyone in 2014. And it's there, and it probably needs some updating, but not terribly much. And that could be put to the people again. I'm not quite sure why that hasn't happened, or I'm not sure. 
any plans to do so, but I think it's an oversight that hasn't happened. I don't think it's necessarily being treated terribly seriously. But for me, it ought to be front and centre. That's what you, what you're saying to people is: this is what we stand for, and what we will not stand for. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows where, you, where you're coming from. There's no other people can say, "Well, I don't agree with this, I don't agree with that." But, but the fact of it is, if you're basing your argument on ethics and principles, it seems to be that a lot have to somehow combat those. And right now, there aren't too many ethics and principles running. No. Let's take a look at your role uh, from uh, we, as we see ourselves, because it seems to me it's 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 a record, Fraser. It's emotional, it's emotive, and you express that so well. And I'll tell you what I find incredibly moving too, is the fact that you're still in there pitching. Because mm. you know, with, with the greatest of respect, they say the mark of a man is not what happens when he's successful. And my son often says, it, it's not how often you fall down, it's how often you get up. And, and well, you have epitomised that. I don't know. I've, I've never really had much success in fact, until the grandchildren came along. I didn't think <laughs> I was good at it. But yeah, it just, I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're, as a people, we're thrown, aren't we? You know, we're really stubborn and, you know, we've got things that are bigger than ourselves. I'm ambivalent about it. Sometimes it annoys me immensely that it's necessary because everything that we were warned about that would happen if we voted yes has happened. You know, it's not just about out of Europe, you know, the pound, everything, you know, the economy. Um, and you just think, why did we make the wrong decision? So whether or not I live to see it, I hope, I hope so, but I know that I will have contributed um, so many others. I mean, the man that was slightly bolded man um, who was ha- helping to, to throw the yes sign out, John Mathers, he passed away last year. A wonderful man. So so lovely, so morris. He was a builder. And um, he was campaigning right to the very end. I mean, he, was, he was literally blowing up balloons when he collapsed. The other boy that's there, Matthew, he, it was his idea to have the meetings, the public meetings. So with 18, 19, like one, and one earlier, but with so much support from people. And I must tell you about the one in Haddington. It's the humour of it all. Uh, we had a really good lineup. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ivan McKee uh, was the international businessman, and Kay Hamilton, uh, the Dowager of Duchess of Hamilton. So people thought it was a debate, and actually it should have been a debate. But the four of them were all advocating independence. <laughs> and it was smiling room only. Yeah. It was just wonderful. Some of it, sometimes you just soared. And uh, you remember these good times. And, and well, I think... Yeah. I, I remember in, too. I remember going to a kirk in uh, Kirkcaldy. And it was crammed to the rafters with all these people who were incredibly enthusiastic about the whole idea of an independent Scotland. And I was frankly staggered when the result came in. But then again, I reflected over two things. One is that I think the original Edinburgh Agreement said that it was going to be a binary choice. But then the Daily Record ran this middle way. And so it said to people, well, you can't have the middle way unless you vote no, mm-hmm. effectively. And I thought that was a breach of the agreement. Yeah, and the other thing that troubled me 
and I'd like your views on this, please, is that there wasn't any independence-funded research after the event to establish precisely why people voted the way they did. Now, I think some academics have done some work here. I'm sure they have. But it's not quite the same because you don't end up asking the, perhaps the, the, the same sort of questions that you might need to inform another campaign, for example. Lord Ashcroft did his own surveys and I think that in forums, that was immediately after I was in forums and um, the debate even now. But can I just tell you something about the um, the vow? I attended a meeting of Murray Foote as a guest speaker. He was a Daily Record editor and he started the vow. Yeah. He went to Gordon Brown and, and, and it all followed from that. And it, it, I'm not going to the detail, but he gave us so much information about that. But I said to him, you know, that was against Purple. He said he didn't think anybody had um, changed their mind. I said, well, I, I know one lady in particular, as we took her stall down to the financial places, the, the Gale in Edinburgh. And this woman was livid because of this last minute option. Yeah. And it, basically, it was an option. She said, I, I, I voted a few days ago, postal vote. If I'd known this was coming, I would have changed my mind. So even before the 18th, people had changed their mind. Even before. More did after on the 19th. And you saw the result um, in May of the following year. Uh, the Labour Party that had had a hegemony in Scotland for 50 plus years was wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, that speaks to a change of uh, a change of mentality, but then again, what happens over time is you get, you know, people change and and you know it's it's understandable. I mean, there's a body of opinion that says that things will have to change in England before there's any prospect of Scottish independence. Mm. I.e., there would have to be a collapse of the British state, in which there would be an accidental Scottish independence, if I can use that term. And there was nobody who would actually contrive it. It would just happen because the state institutions had begun to fail so uh, cataclysmically that any control over Scotland had disappeared, not not due to a political move, but due to institutional failure. In other words, the Scottish government ended up uh, operating in the international sector, in the financial sector, and the banking sector by default, because it had to, because the institutions that it previously depended upon were no longer there. There was an argument there that says that's what may happen. And and that, that would be accompanied by the rise of English nationalism, I guess. That would be a part of that. Yeah, right about there. That's a diabolical prospect. I hope it never isn't happens. It, isn't it? I have to say, it's not an unusual situation when it comes to independence movements. Some of them happen entirely by accident. Not too many, granted, but, but some do. But it's difficult to see what movement can, there can be without the convention idea that you that you suggested, it seems to me, Fraser. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to look down the road five years from now and uh, you were five years older, what sort of Scotland would you be living in five years' time? If we're independent, it's still going to be hard. And I think that realism has to be there. Um, it's for the next generation. But if we're not, I can't be optimistic because the British state is after us. They know they'll never occupy St Andrew's house again. So they built their own one underneath it, Queen Elizabeth House. Uh, and I think that's 
going to be the power base. I can't, can't really think there'll be any restraints on them. And that, that, that worries me immensely. They say we're a, we're a very, very civilised country. Um, 96% took part. Nobody ended up in the morgue. Nobody ended up in the hospital. You know, it was extraordinary how peaceful and invigorating it was. You know, it was a, a kind of democratic revolution of engagement. We can get that back again. It's going to be much harder, much, much harder. But maybe we need to go through a kind of uh, purification, you know, for people to realise cognitive dissonance, where you, you know the reality, but you just, I'm just going to ignore reality. You have to facts. And sometimes I think we're, we're in that situation. I mean, I'm 70, I was 72 weeks old. Never in my life, and we were poor when we were married, never in my life have I watched television with a hat on and a fleece and a couple of blankets. I mentioned that to the dentist. They said, oh, we've got a we've got a TV blanket as well. Yeah, we're not laughing. And at the seams with the energy, we're exporting it. We're completely energy self-sufficient. And yet this is the reality. Many people outside Scotland listening to what you've just said, would say, hold on a second, hold on a second here. There's a majority party in Scotland. Why isn't it dealing with these issues? Why is well, it in the forefront well, of saying this far and no further? Yeah. They have a reasonable point to No, it's not reasonable. And it's just, but it needs to be, the unreasonableness of it has to be spelled out over and over. We have 30% of the taxation powers less of the social security powers. Until we get 100% of the economic powers and uh, the fiscal powers and the monetary powers, it's the monetary powers that allow you to, to borrow and to create wealth. And we will do that easily because we've got so much collateral and land in the, in the seas and in our people, one of the most educated in the world. We will be able to create this wealth yeah. And then, then we can, well, say, say, say we wanted to reindustrialize, like, you know, that's a big, a big problem. I should say to um, industries that come in, we'll give you 10 years free electricity. Just think how revolutionary that would be. The reason that all the food prices are up 17% is largely because of energy costs yeah. in the global market. You know, we just need to look at Norway. Or Ireland. Ireland's going to be one of the richest of, or maybe the richest country in the world. Ireland doesn't have resources, apart from its people. Norway's got the same oil or less and gas that we have. So, no disrespect, Fraser, but somebody overseas listening to you would say, well, what, what are you going to do about it then? Are you just going to sit there and say, this is deplorable? Are you, what are you going to do about it? Well, in, 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 our, in our way, we in, in, in Musselburgh, we're trying to educate people, trying to popularise. And uh, that has to go on throughout the country. Um, we need to win the, the battle, uh, the, you know, to, to help people realise they've been gaslit and and create a real popular demand. You, you can only be gaslit if you know, people might argue if you permit it to happen. I mean, for example, BBC Scotland has been operating the way it has uh, in a rather hard-fisted amateurish, but uh, in terms of its impact on the people over 40, quite significant impact. Uh, and yet it continues to do so. 
the governing party continues to cooperate with it. I, I don't hear anyone advocating that BBC Scotland should report into into Scotland and not to London. I don't I don't hear any of the major party organs suggesting that. It seems to me that's a must. I mean, that, if you've got a problem with gaslighting, you get rid of it. You don't you don't just say, "Oh, we have to try and ameliorate it somehow." How to do that and stop paying your TV license? Well, there must be a range of things that a, a government with a, a reasonably effective civil service and decent research could could establish. I'm not in a position to do that. What I have done is my little bit here, and Jane and you have done your bit, which is to say you don't have to dislike the media. You could create your own media. No. And maybe more of that should be happening. Well, maybe the SNP needs to create a verification unit. But why why put up with the distortions in the first place is what I'm saying. Well, you, you can up the ante. You can say we're withdrawing support. We're not going to give you any interviewees. You know, you know, saying the minister couldn't didn't arrive. You know, what, what, did you phone him at six o'clock in the morning? As I say, talking up Scotland, go to Professor John Robertson, and every day he's got five or six posts, basically saying this is lies. Yeah, lies. Anyway, we could we should save that for another time, perhaps. Fraser, this has been very enlightening and entertaining, and thank you very much, and Fraser. Great to hear from Fraser, and looking forward to seeing that film even more now. And as a reminder, it's called To See Ourselves. And if you'd like to listen to the interview we did with Jay, you can get it on our website, scottishindipod.scot, or watch the video version on our YouTube channel, IndiePod Extra. We'll be back again next Friday with another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now.